Hello and welcome to the Our Wisdom podcast. I'm Geeta Sundaram from Goa, India, and I'm here to talk to you about all things business, politics, and culture. Thank you for joining me. Today's edition is about stakeholder capitalism. What's at stake and why? Hello and welcome to the March 2020 edition of Our Wisdom Podcast, where we're discussing capitalism. You're probably thinking, oh gosh, haven't we been reading and hearing enough about it already? Sure we have, and it's a subject of great debate and discussion, especially in the US, as the country goes to elections in November this year. The Democrats, led by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, have been raising the pitch for a new kind of economic system that will replace the existing American-style laissez-faire capitalism. One of the ideas they've been looking to is the Nordic style of capitalism, an economic system that is safeguarded by a kind of social democratic government that offers certain protections to its citizens. However, we are going to be discussing another kind of capitalism today, one that has been doing the rounds of business circles and World Economic Forum summits. I for one am quite uncomfortable with labelling any system, and especially one that is complex, but stakeholder capitalism is what business is calling it for now. It is meant to signify a change from Milton Friedman's idea of shareholder capitalism. In many ways, the American form of capitalism follows Friedman's ideas and principles in that the purpose of a firm is only to generate profits and that all companies operate in a free market system, leaving everything to competitive market forces with as little government intervention as possible. It takes Adam Smith's ideas of a free market system operating through the invisible hand of market forces even further since it restrains, indeed shuns, the role of government and requires corporations to play no role outside of generating profits in the wider economy. As I had written in a post on my blog some time ago, Milton Friedman was so appalled by the idea of corporate social responsibility that he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in 1971 arguing that the only corporate social responsibility role of business is to generate profits for shareholders. As you'd expect, almost all his arguments pivot on one feature of business alone, ownership, with sophistry doing the rest. In other words, business serves one master, Deal Street. Other economists reinforced this line of thinking as well. Shoshana Zuboff, quoting a 1976 paper of economists Michael Jensen and William Meckling in her book Surveillance Capitalism, which I have just begun reading, writes, they boldly argued that structural disconnect between owners and managers can result in the value of the firm being substantially lower than it otherwise could be." Further, she writes, if managers sub-optimized the value of the firm to its owners in favor of their own preferences and comfort, it was only rational for them to do so. 
The solution, these economists argued, was to assert the market signal of value, the share price, as the basis for a new incentive structure intended to finally and decisively align managerial behavior with owners' interests. Managers who failed to bend to the ineffable signs of Hayek's extended order would quickly become prey to the barbarians at the gate in a new and vicious hunt for unrealized market value. Here we have the genesis of the financial markets taking over as masters of the universe and managers' remuneration tied to the performance of the firm's share price. What better alignment can there be between owners' and managers' interests? Little wonder, managers too can't think beyond the next quarter. Stakeholder capitalism, on the other hand, argues for business to play a larger role in society and to add value to the lives of all stakeholders, not only shareholders. It doesn't mean less government but better government and calls on business to step up to the new challenges. This idea, although it has gained momentum recently, dates back to the 1970s as well, when Klaus Schwab, chief of the World Economic Forum, first thought up and wrote about the idea. As the WEF recently put out a statement on its website for the 2020 Davos Summit, it envisages companies doing more than producing goods and services and engaging in economic activity. You can read the entire statement on the World Economic Forum website, but I think the key and most critical elements of the Davos Manifesto for the purposes of this discussion are those that deal with customers, employees and the wider community. I quote, a1. A company serves its customers by providing a value proposition that best meets their needs. It accepts and supports fair competition and a level playing field. It has zero tolerance for corruption. It keeps the digital ecosystem in which it operates reliable and trustworthy. It makes customers fully aware of the functionality of its products and services, including adverse implications or negative externalities. 2. A company treats its people with dignity and respect. It honors diversity and strives for continuous improvements in working conditions and employee well-being. In a world of rapid change, a company fosters continued employability through ongoing upskilling and reskilling. 4. A company serves society at large through its activities, supports the communities in which it works and pays its fair share of taxes. It ensures the safe, ethical and efficient use of data. It acts as a steward of the environmental and material universe for future generations. It consciously protects our biosphere and champions a circular, shared and regenerative economy. It continuously expands the frontiers of knowledge, innovation and technology to improve people's well-being. A company is more than an economic unit generating wealth it fulfills human and societal aspirations as part of the broader social system. Performance must be measured not only on the return to shareholders, but also on how it achieves its environmental, social and good governance objectives. Executive remuneration should reflect stakeholder responsibility. C. A company that has a multinational scope of activities not only serves all those stakeholders who are directly engaged, but acts itself as a stakeholder, together with governments and civil society, of our global future. Corporate global citizenship requires a company to harness its core competencies, its entrepreneurship skills and relevant resources in collaborative efforts with other companies and stakeholders to improve the state of the world. 
We know that it is the 2008 financial crisis and the rise of the millennials that has given this idea greater momentum in recent times and it has forced companies to consider such a world. It has resulted in companies pursuing all sorts of social causes under the banner of brand purpose, a lot of which is woke wash, if I can call it that, and doesn't go beyond marketing. Surely even the millennials can see through it. How can we make stakeholder capitalism work for all? We'll talk about that after this little break. You're listening to the Our Wisdom Podcast. Coming up is how American businesses are looking at stakeholder capitalism. Welcome back to our discussion on stakeholder capitalism. It might interest you to know that the Business Roundtable in the US has also adopted stakeholder capitalism as the guiding principle for its members and they have also generated a statement on their website. Let's take a quick look at that. It says, Americans deserve an economy that allows each person to succeed through hard work and creativity and to lead a life of meaning and dignity. The Business Roundtable believes the free market system is the best means of generating good jobs, a strong and sustainable economy, innovation, a healthy environment, and economic opportunity for all. It also says, quote, businesses play a vital role in the economy by creating jobs, fostering innovation, and providing essential goods and services. Businesses make and sell consumer products, manufacture equipment and vehicles, support the national defense, grow and produce food, pro uh, provide health care, generate and deliver energy, and offer financial, communications, and other services that underpin economic growth. While each of our individual companies serves its own corporate purpose, we share a fundamental commitment to all of our stakeholders. We commit to, and here again I have chosen to focus on what I believe are the critical components, delivering value to our customers. We will further the tradition of American companies leading the way in meeting or exceeding customer expectations. Investing in our employees, this starts with compensating them fairly and providing important benefits. It also includes supporting them through training and education that help develop new skills for a rapidly changing world. We foster diversity and inclusion, dignity and respect. Supporting the communities in which we work, we respect the people in our communities and protect the environment by embracing sustainable practices across our businesses. Unfortunately, it reads like something we've all heard before, doesn't it? Where in delivering value to customers does it assure them of the highest quality standards, best ethical practices, customer support, etc.? Where in the employee commitment does it ensure gender pay parity, a fixed ratio between the lowest and the highest paid in the firm, etc.? And frankly, I think the environment deserves to be treated separately from the more general commitment to support communities. 
Of course, we know that each company is governed by its own policies, but unless there are more concrete commitments to change the focus of capitalism from shareholder to stakeholder, these will remain empty promises and statements. If stakeholder capitalism is to succeed, it must go beyond platitudes. Besides, there is no system developed for businesses to follow or indeed to ensure that it works, which is why it needs to be measurable, accountable under different heads, and finally must be enshrined by law in some form or the other. Joseph Stieglitz, writing in a Project Syndicate article, for example, has welcomed the Business Roundtable decision to adopt stakeholder capitalism, but he is also quick to point out that without a system to make it work, it will just be idle chatter. So how can we ensure that it works better? We'll discuss that on the other side of this break. You're listening to the Owl Wisdom Podcast. Next, we'll be discussing how to make stakeholder capitalism work better. Welcome back. I am more enthused and convinced by the idea that since companies generate economic activity, employment, production and consumption of a lot of goods and services, and indeed their profits, by using up a variety of resources, they are under an obligation to replenish those resources for now and for the future. Land, human capital, finance, natural resources and the environment are all the resources that are employed by corporations and they are all of a finite nature. It is this single most important feature that should make business do more than merely generate profits for shareholders. Which means that companies ought to be duty-bound to consider a whole host of activities that would enhance the value of their business for the wider community. Now don't get me wrong and think that the government should make these mandatory, as indeed they did in India, with the 2% of net profit mandatory spent on corporate social responsibility introduced in 2008. It has made a mockery of CSR and has led to all kinds of activity being considered under CSR, from Swachh Bharat to building cow shelters and statues. No, what I am talking about is companies contributing to better land use and land development around their manufacturing facilities, to development of human capital through training and skilling programs, which is an imperative in the age of AI and automation, environment conservation, sustainable farming and forestry practices, etc. A lot of these are not merely financial commitments, but commitments of time and other resources, including the right expertise. For example, if a company has its manufacturing facility in a rural, semi-urban area, it becomes the company's responsibility to engage with the local administration and plan for better land use and development in the area, from roads to water and electricity supply, housing, education and healthcare. It is another way for public-private partnerships to grow and for companies to lend a hand to development. In many of these areas, local government might not even have the required level of experience or expertise, and business can certainly play a role here. 
Over the long term, it will also help in building capacity in local governance and social infrastructure. Of course, there is always the danger of crony capitalism or corporatism as Edmund Phelps puts it in his book Mass Flourishing, by which he means an unhealthy nexus between business and government that saps the creative and innovative energies of a business. The framework that is developed for stakeholder capitalism will have to guard against that as well. While the idea of stakeholder capitalism has been gaining ground, there is already another parallel development taking place, ESG, Environment, Social and Governance. Many multinational companies already practice ESG and there is a need for accounting for this as well in financial reports. Perhaps ESG also needs to widen its scope to make room for other aspects of stakeholder capitalism not already included in it, and the two need to dovetail into each other to create one comprehensive system. Most importantly, stakeholder capitalism needs to become institutionalized as the new way of doing business. It is not another CSR activity, nor another marketing activity, so companies will have to budget and plan for it separately. Just as Milton Friedman's system became institutionalized through legislation and through business schools, as Paul Collier writes in his book Future of Capitalism, stakeholder capitalism will have to be enshrined as policy and accepted as bus in business policy circles, including academia and think tanks, for it to be practiced widely. And finally, we come to the most important consideration. Why should business engage in all this activity that is likely to be seen as non-core by many? I believe there are very good reasons for them to consider adopting stakeholder capitalism, the most important being the building of capacity in society over the long term. If we consider stakeholder capitalism as a way of replenishing resources, companies will see this as an investment and will be the biggest beneficiaries of this in the long run. There is another benefit for business, that of building their brands. This would be a very different way to build their brands from the current woke marketing efforts that are superficial and many a time quite meaningless. But here again, the benefits will become clear only over the long term. We all know what is at stake with rising inequality, unemployment, disruption of entire industries, climate change, as well as the threat of pandemics. Doing business in such a world is a vast and complex subject, but I hope I've been able to give you a glimpse of why and how stakeholder capitalism might work more effectively through this podcast. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you have any specific comments, don't hesitate to share them. Until next month, it's goodbye from me, Geeta Sundaram, at the Our Wisdom Podcast. For more Owl Wisdom, read my blog peripateticperch.com and follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter.